This is Shaco Art Speak. Welcome to Shaco Art Space. Uh, my name is Ryan Letario, and uh, my co- co-host, uh, Dr. Gareth Blackwell, hey, is here. How's it going? How's it going, Gareth? <laughs> Good. You look Good. wide awake today. Oh, I'm severely yeah. wide awake. I've yeah. got a small cup of coffee, so okay. I can make it maybe 30 minutes. Okay, so we'll <laughs> brew more. We'll brew more coffee. Uh, we, we have an exciting show today, uh, an exciting episode. Um, so much to cover, uh, a lot of exciting things happening with Shaco Art Space. Uh, um, many of you know Shaco Art Space is a, a nonprofit gallery here in uh, Richmond, Virginia, uh, in Shaco Bottom, which is actually a location. We've had people ask, what is Shaco? It's, it's called Shaco Bottom. It's a, a part of the city of Richmond. Um, it's historic. It's worth looking up. We'll probably talk about it more later. Um, so anytime you hear Shaco, it's in reference to our location. And so uh, this is Shaco Art Speak or Art Speak for short. And um, this podcast is going to, uh, over many episodes over this season, deal with a lot of different issues pertaining to art and design. Um, uh, we, we, as we talked about in the past episode, uh, 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 I, I'm an educator at a university here in the city of Richmond as, as well as Gareth. And um, so we've been dealing with art and design for quite some time uh, while curating this space and launching many new initiatives uh, that are that are actually coming on the horizon. We have a bunch of expansion projects and uh, uh, just facets to this space that are going to be happening this year, actually. So this podcast is one of those, and we just hope to uh, generate uh, a broad-based dialogue. Um, uh, we have a lot of artists and designers lined up to interview and just have long, just kind of open conversation with. Um, part of the part of the programming with this this podcast will include uh, interviewing exhibiting artists uh, at Chaco Art Space, and so uh, we have the extreme privilege uh, to be talking today with Nikki Painter, uh, whose exhibition, large scale solo exhibition, is currently up at Chaco Art Space called uh, Shape Shifting. Uh, <laughs> Bug brain shape shifting, which is uh, an incredible exhibition. If you haven't had a chance to see it, you really do need to come down and see it. Uh, our gallery is open by appointment, but also uh, every Tuesday from five to seven. And uh, anytime you want to come down and see it, you really should uh, contact us. Uh, you can look at our website and, and get more info there. But um, really remarkable exhibition. It's up until February 24th. And so do come down and see that. But anyhow, we're, we get a great uh, opportunity here to talk to, to Nikki. And so um, so welcome, Nikki. We're, we're yeah, super glad for, to have you. Thanks for coming here. Good morning. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, so, yeah. So uh, I, I had said I listened to uh, your, you know, when you had your artist talk here at the gallery, I, I really thought um, the talk was pretty remarkable. And so uh, as we move into uh, this episode, um, I'd love to get at some of the ideas that I think you introduced pertain to your work sure. uh, in that talk. But before we do that, I just kind of want to hear a little bit about your, uh, just your experience as an artist, like, how, like just your, a little bit of your past, like, like when did you decide to decide to decide to, to get serious about art? And uh, if you would. Well, I am one of those people who always wanted to be an artist. I mean, I can remember from a very young age um, drawing at my kitchen table and whatever day that I found out that was a thing, that that was something you could do as a career, I knew that was for me. And going through school, you know, taking various classes to pursue that didn't really become a serious thing until 
undergrad at VCU. Um, I had an arts program in my high school that I went to, but it was, you know, it was a fa fairly small program. I grew up in a very small town. So actually getting to take so many art classes where there was so much drawing from life, design classes, all of that stuff in undergrad was just the clincher. I knew that that was for me. Yeah. When, so I'm I'm, I'm just curious, the, the scope of your work is pretty impressive, but there's that, there's that like, you know, when you're, when you're like, when I thought I was an, like, when I wanted to be an artist, what that meant to me as like a kid for me was, um, you know, like a comic book drawing. So that the scope of what was possible for me was, was narrowed. Not that comic books are, are a narrow field, but in my uh, young experience, I thought that that was it. Like I didn't really have anything else to like look towards to identify with yeah. or so the license I had primarily came through image making as it pertains to storytelling and comic books. Um, what, where was, what was the scope like for you before coming to VCU and then how did that change? I think it was similar. I mean, I can remember in high school being really obsessed with Renaissance art. Okay. And so very kind of realistic and also narrative depictions of the figure. I'm sure at that time that was something that I thought I was going to be engaging with career-wise. Um, and that's a really good question. I'm not sure when that shifted, but probably... And having contemporary art classes in mm -hmm. undergrad, like realizing just the breadth um, of representation, the breadth of sorts of art making processes that was available. I, it didn't take me long to determine that realism was something, it, realism was a goal for me in undergrad, but that I wanted to move past that. I wanted mm -hmm. to have more of a sense of invention in my own work. And that's something that I think really drives the work. Okay. Continued up until now and, and probably will forever. Yeah. And invention, um, I don't, I'm just meandering here, but uh, uh, it's like inventions that feel uh, more impossible in some right. ways than, than like the very pragmatic invention. You know, like uh, it seems like they're, they're inventions that are like launch pads into more unknown quantities or spaces yeah. or you know when I when I think about your work uh, which I think is kind of uh there's almost like a whimsical component to that but I don't I don't think your work is whimsical so that's just an interesting mm -hmm. uh idea the the invention idea I think I don't know what do you what do you think about that no, yeah I think that I think that works for you I'm trying to think through this I know there's a uh, some things we've been talking through with some students um this idea of like adjacent possible right that uh the things we move into and in like creative practice actually move us into spaces that allow for new opportunities and new paths forward to kind of emerge. And I think that's really interesting looking through your work because it, um, it's got a feel of like building a world to it that, um, like seems familiar, but like you're saying is, is an invention. Right? right. And so there's a familiarity to it mm -hmm. that I think brings you into the work when you start to look at it. But then the more you kind of, pick through the pieces of it visually, you start to see that, oh, it's, this is actually very different in some mm -hmm. ways. Um, and that allows like, at least mentally for me to go into different places with the work. And even, you know, I've got a four year old daughter and she's come to the gallery several times and she, like the stories that she is able to create just from looking at your work, 
I think you kind of hit it on the head, Ryan. Like your work is not whimsical, but there's a nature of the work itself that I think like there's this kind of uh, this, uh, this joy in life in it that's like really exuberant that uh, is mm. kind of fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's something that even my four-year-old daughter is picking up on um, because the way that she has seen a few of your pieces have just been like, oh, that's really interesting because she, in a piece where I saw homes, she saw airplanes in the sky. Mm. And I was like, that's... That's interesting, but they're not that different in some ways, especially as I think as you're portraying some of them through the visuals in your art. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, we can go into it later, but just like the whole aspect of placemaking or and trying to identify your location in relationship to something. And, you know, there's an elusive quality to this work. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you talk about that, like the, the abstraction component um, in, in your work? Um, like how that functions in the work like like why did you land on abstraction maybe that goes into graduate school mm-hmm. too like in terms of your as an abstract painter myself i think i have my own ideas of why but um, i'm curious like how does that um what 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 do you think it, it, there is about uh this i mean i'm using it in a pejorative sense but i mean your work is is uh pretty pretty unique that the, the way you make the work um and it is abstract but it also still gives these like indicators of, of something. So it's not so removed that you can't relate to it. Right. You know? Well, I think that for me, abstraction is really a product of invention Mm -hmm. or my search for invention. Um, at some point in undergrad, even though I was really enjoying taking a lot of life drawing classes, I realized that being able to draw really well, really, realistically was a skill that was just just sort of an end like I didn't really Mm -hmm. see anything past attaining that skill Mm -hmm. and I just kept thinking what can I do like what is in image making that is going to be mine like how can I make work that really feels like mine and that has been a question that I continue to ask and a lot of the work, a lot of the bodies of work that I've made over the course of the years since undergrad, even before I was in grad school, a lot of it has just been reacting to that question. Like what about this bunch of work doesn't feel like mine? What, right. what needs to shift? Um, so abstraction for me is just different sorts of stages of the work becoming more my own. Like if, mm. if you think about something really becoming fully abstracted, like broken down into its most essential shapes, colors, patterns. I think all of the stages of how that happens, which is something that I do think about in the work, like what does this look like if it becomes even more simplified? Mm -hmm. Um, The decision for where to stop that is a very personal process. And I think is something that I think a lot about in trying to achieve work that is truly my own that's interesting yeah yeah it's like a almost like you're talking about it as like this like i'm getting like a boomerang like it has to go away and pass through uh, some kind of state and and somehow um it's i mean i think people think about abstract art as being divorced from persons and in a way, and so in the way that you're talking about it, it's completely not the case. It's that it's it's sort of uh, um, like much more f- 
from a person, a particular person yeah. with a unique vision and a distinct understanding. And that is how I think yeah. about abstraction and also even non-objective work mm -hmm. is it's, it's very personal, right. all the decision right. making that's involved in, in that kind of work. Yeah. 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 So I think that, I think a lot of times, like maybe not, uh, makers per se, but I mean, maybe those that are kind of like just on the outside of, of, you know, considering art or looking at art or what have you. Like, I think there is like this idea that that's a very, like that's remote and removed from, from human beings. Like right. Humans. Almost like it's an automatic sort of right. less yeah. thoughtful. I yeah. Think it less goes thoughtful. Back to like, even what you were saying earlier about like kind of that limited scope when we start out, right. When, when we're kind of on the threshold of like the art world and we really get into what you were talking about with undergrad, where you start to understand the breadth of everything that's there and available and what you can do. I think that that's limited scope to start out with abstraction is very much, you know, here's a yellow square on a canvas, right? And it's like, oh, it's not, it's not the hyper realism, so it's abstraction. But I really like the connection you made between uh, abstraction and invention, mm -hmm. right? There's there's an abstraction that goes on even in the building of a reality that isn't here, right? Or uh, an image that isn't here. Um, so, you know, fiction in that way can kind of be an abstraction, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in the same way that biography isn't. Um, and I think that's that's an interesting kind of lens to, to look at abstraction through that really does make it feel a lot more personal. Mm -hmm. um, because the invention has to come from somebody's mind, right? right? So, um, And I mean, I think that's something that is important about the decisions I make in my work also is especially when there are combinations of sections of things that are more abstract versus more recognizable imagery is again it's that decision being made really evident you know these are the things that i'm including these are the things that are becoming simplified yeah so kind of like a re it's it's a bit of a reordering so like some of the i think the imagery that i know that's coming out of your work feels like it's it's born out of the particularized abstract soil that you've created for it sure so then it it doesn't merely live de dependent upon like what is directly in front of us in terms of like like if i was looking at an, an image of the earth or something like that like an orb or what have you like it doesn't feel like it it is it is independent or dependent upon that in order to be understandable it, it feels like it rests more in the sort of the visual milieu i think that you've created for yourself because i think somebody came into one of the one of the the talk or, or one of the days that the gallery's been open and, and said something to the effect of like that your work was unmistakably yours. Hmm. They, 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 they really, they were familiar with your work and they were really adamant that, that, that you had something very distinctive about this, the, the makeup and the scope and the, of, of the work that you're making. And, and they were, you know, it was a positive for them, you know, it's yeah, like a, that's great. I mean, know. that's, I consider that very positive. Yeah. 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 So I was like, that's pretty, I mean, yeah, it's just an interesting thought for someone to have that strong of a reaction. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a fantastic coherence to the show, especially being a show that's so large. There's a coherence to it that you, like Ryan's saying, it does feel unmistakably all coming from one artist. There's no question about that. That's just to, nice. just to throw it out there really fast, there's 50 pieces in the show, so I, don't, I mean, it's sometimes people don't know how large the space is and what kind of undertaking right. it is to actually, to actually do a show here. It's a lot of work. A lot of work. Show. Yeah, yeah. So we yeah. get into that over the course of 50 pieces, like you you understand that this is all coming from an individual, at least visually. Um, but I think one thing that I'm interested in is um, there's that kind of uh, coherence or the feel where everything is uh, coming from the, the same source, but you're doing it through so many different uses of mediums, right? That it's not 50 
just paintings on a canvas, right? But there are like very like there are varied ways that you're making this stuff. And mm -hmm. so what is kind of the way that you consider how the piece should live through the process you're going to make it through, whether it's going to be more three-dimensional, more flat, more, more painting, more sculptural? Like, how do you understand that? Well, a lot of the times when I'm working through bodies of work or between bodies of work, um, you know, a lot of those things again, kind of when I was talking about earlier bodies of work, a lot of those things are reactions to each other. So within one singular related body of work, um, like the planet series, the little series of smaller grid drawings that are out there, a lot of those things are thinking about, well, this is something that I'm really enjoying about this particular drawing. I wanna carry that over to the next one, but then I also need to change this other aspect of it, whether that's color, something about the composition, um, scale, any of those kinds of small design-based decisions. Uh, so then typically between separate bodies of work, there will be something that I'm reacting to as well. Again, something that, that I'm enjoying um, or something that needs to change or then something that has occurred to me as like the, the paper weaving drawings that are right out here. That was a process that I think um, you know, it's something that we all are familiar with from elementary school. It's like a really basic motor process that I think is taught in like the second grade or something like that. But it was something that reoccurred to me possibly through Instagram, possibly through seeing another artist that had used it and, and just thinking, you know, that's something really fun that I haven't done in so long. Like, how can I reincorporate that in my work in some way? Um, so, you know, it's, it's thinking about what's in the work. It's reacting to the things that, that are working, the things that are not working as much and just continuing to make. Mm -hmm. You ever have that? Um, I know for me, like, so more as a, as a kind of like more of a, a painter's painter or whatever, I think, I think for a lot of years, especially in graduate school, I had this like existent, like it sounds so bad, but I had like the, the is is this enough question all the time like uh -huh. is what I'm doing enough and and the enough part never had like a direct reference it was just sort of like stated to the <laughs> out into outer space like is this enough and um and I, I'm not there anymore mm -hmm. but I definitely had a strong wrestling with that and I found that that had a impact on my creativity I guess or or you know like when you're talking about inventing um in, in some ways in a detrimental way. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it didn't allow me to have the eyes to see what I was creating because they were colored by this ambition to satisfy a, like a deeper need, you know, a, a kind of like a, an almost like an impossible confirmation that I needed to have. And I think that compelled me to go to graduate school. You mm -hmm. know, it's like why I went to BCU. It's like this, you know, number one public art school in the country. I'm like, if I go here for my MFA, like I will get the confirmation I need. And then I'll know that what I'm doing is enough or worthy Anyhow, I don't know. Is that is that something you ever wrestle with? Is that was oh, that a yeah. thing? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is such a great question. I, you know, when you say "is it enough," my immediate thought is "enough of what?" Mm -hmm. Like, and so for me, when I'm thinking about that question, "is it enough?" I tend to have a problem with editing in general. Mm. Um, I want more. I always want more. Um, mm how can I fit more sort of visual stimuli into a picture plane? 
And that's part of the reason why there's so many different kinds of work in the show is because I'm constantly thinking about that. And one thing won't have something that I'm looking for. So that's a reason to make more work, which is awesome. You know, that's how you build a career for years and years and years is never being satisfied, never right. having enough. Um, but yeah, is it is it enough is definitely a question that I think about. And being able to put your finger on enough of what I think is the key to answering that question and maybe satisfying it at least temporarily mm -hmm. via one work or one body of work. Or... Right. So I, I want to kind of push into that then because I want to go a step further with it because you're, you're hinting at this. But um, <laughs> I know one thing that uh, I have issues with uh, in my work, and I know that other artists and designers share this, is with this question of is it enough, then how do you walk away from a piece and say, oh, it's, it's finished? Right, because if you're always kind of saying, "What more can I do? What more can I do?" Right. How do you have a finished piece? Well, I think for me, there is just the knowledge that okay, there's so many more years of making stuff behind this. So mm -hmm. at some point, it is full enough. It it moves my eye through the picture plane in a way that is enough. Um, it feels full enough. Um, it has enough visual variety. It has enough also unity. Um, I always think about elements and principles of design whenever I'm thinking about any any work that I'm looking at, whether it's my own or somebody else's, and kind of running down the list, like what, what could be shifted, what could be more, what could be less in this piece. And um, a sense of surprise is always something that I'm looking for mm. in a work as well when I'm on the way to determine, determining whether or not it's actually finished. So when a work has that feeling of fullness, um, being somewhat determined by the parameters of the piece, you know, some of the pieces in the show are really much more about like color, pattern, shape relationships, whereas others have sort of imagery and more of a narrative quality to them. Thinking about those sort of stipulations within an individual work, um, coupled with that sense of surprise that I'm constantly looking for, in addition to the the kind of feeling of aesthetic balance, but then also asymmetry is something that I'm, I'm usually on the hunt for as well. All of those kinds of things on the checklist tend to go into whether or not I decide that a piece is complete and then move on to the next one. <laughs> it does seem like when you're, you know, it's, it's at the intuitive level. It's like, and not like an irrational hunch, but like that which is like direct to your consciousness, like sure. that which is present to you. Um, it, it emerges in such a way uh, through your effort that at some point you just you, you also just tend to look more than do and there, there are those points where you're like uh, if it you know in some kind of goofy way it satisfies you to the extent that you're 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 looking results and finished versus like oh my gosh I don't want anybody to see this right. I'm looking at it because I do not know how to fix like right. I don't know how to resolve this and that's a dip. That's like where I, you know, for me, I'm like, I got to scrap it. Like, but if it's the other, then you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hang out with you for a while. And well, that's one of the really nice things about working on paper so much as well is if, you know, we all get to those stages when it's like, oh, this is just, it's past the point of being salvaged. Right. But I know I'm just going to cut it up and make yeah. it into something else. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So. Yeah. You have like, yeah. I mean, I, I think about that, like the risk, like not like recycling, but like, Think about gardens a lot and then you have like i mean this show is uh 
opens up with um, this kind of, um, like, I do agree, like, there's like an unmistakable quality to the work that I think is highly indicative of your inventiveness. So I would ground it squarely with you as the artist. And so when you come in, there is a, a world, you know, so for anybody who hasn't seen the show, you really should. When you come into the space, uh, there are, there is a garden. Um, it's a very abstract garden, but it is a mm -hmm. garden. So the scale has changed. I mentioned this in the, in the artist talk. I, I alluded to it a little bit. And then you, you move, uh, to one of our larger to like gallery two. And as you turn the corner, it opens up into this more constructive space. It's more architectural, but it still has a lot of the hallmark variables and color relationships and abstract mm -hmm. uh, shifting planes that are, um, you know, mixed media. And then it, and then it kind of moves around to like just the abstract principles. By, by the time you get to gallery three, like there's these flat, but they're like these shadow box pieces. And, you know, like, so like you're being brought you're being shifted through different scales mm -hmm. of a larger world is, is kind of the way that the show oh, feels. Yeah. And then it kind of breaks down. So then you have your broken ladder pieces. So the architecture is broken down and then it kind of like cli like climaxes or closes in, back at gallery one mm -hmm. with this grid of uh, possible um, earth like environments that are like, they look like they're being remade or something or regenerated. Mm -hmm. And so that you do, I mean, I don't even know if we were thinking about it consciously, but the, you made the work and it resulted in a show that kind of gives, whether intentional or not, gives that feel. I don't know. What, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? I really wasn't thinking about, you know, when we were curating the show and arranging things in the space, I wasn't really thinking about the sensation or even sort of a sense of a timeline that would happen as you were walking through the space, which mm -hmm. maybe was actually a, a mistake on my part to not consider that. I was really just trying to think about what work or, or what bodies of work fit best um, into each little segment of mm -hmm. the gallery. But that's really interesting to think about that. I had not considered that. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I, I, uh, I said like, been thinking about this a lot and like trying to simplify it to myself, but also for others, which is the, you know, you, um, we have to see what is in order to imagine what could be, mm -hmm. but also what will be and what is. So, I mean, like there's that, which relates to the inventive thing a little bit. So like observing what is becomes like a launch pad for what could be. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I think being able to really see, you know, going back to that basic building block of drawing from life, like really seeing is at the root of every right artist practice yeah that ability to observe and so i was thinking about that like you know maybe you didn't intend into there was not a conscious deliberate thing when it came to sort of the way the space has been constructed mm -hmm. like all, the way the show's been curated right but it, it isn't entirely divorced from your consciousness or your thinking prior to the show i mean i was thinking about your artist talk and one thing that i was really interested in is, is when you talked about a kind of a enchanted moment coming upon a, mm -hmm. a guard, you know, like you had, right. but that was a really vivid uh, picture of, I think something that I, that actually is occurring in the work. And so mm -hmm. I don't know if you, if you could talk about that more, because I feel like that actually speaks to like what we're literally seeing. Like, it's kind of like you said you wanted something in response to that mm -hmm. encounter, which you can talk about. Right. And it seems like 
uh, that something is uh, has occurred, I think, to, to a reasonable extent in this show. Well, I think that's wonderful if it has. Um, yeah, in the artist talk, when I was mentioning this particular afternoon, I had been walking to class or home from class and going down an alleyway in Richmond. Uh, anybody who has lived in the city for any amount of time knows that the alleyways can vary pretty drastically between <laughs> kind of grungy, <laughs> to, kind of grungy. <laughs> to like very extra super grungy. Um, Richmond's wonderfully grungy. So yeah, especially especially the alleys. <laughs> there are lots of grungy surprises in yeah. the alleys. Uh, so, you know, I was just having a pretty typical grungy alley experience and came around a corner and encountered this amazing backyard garden that I had never seen before and have never been able to find since then. In the years that I continued to live in the fan, I went on the hunt for that thing to see it again and could never it find it. I, I don't know what it was happened. The alley mirage. <laughs> I don't know. Um but yeah, and I think it was also, it was just a certain time of day. It was a certain, a certain moment, like, like we were talking about where the light was just right. Um, I, I know that it had that quality of kind of shining through the plants, shining through the foliage in that way that makes them glow, makes them almost look fluorescent. And mm -hmm. it was just this encounter with beauty in the midst of the alley. And that, that kind of sense of surprise goes back to to what I'm referring to when I talk about surprise. It's it's not really just a surprise, it's being surprised by mm. beauty, um, which I did not talk about specifically in the artist talk because I do think talking about beauty gets into really kind of it's, tricky, can get really very dicey. subjective We need to have territory. an episode on yeah. beauty and let it get super dicey. Oh, <laughs> Gloves off, old school, let's talk about, no, I don't know. Um, I, I have yeah, the same I mean, experience almost repeatedly when I go to Taco Bell. When they update the menu, um, the, <laughs> the variation on the same four ingredients blows my mind yeah. like a child all the time. Anyhow, that's just where I'm at. Yeah. Um, not, not, not as sensitive as you, I don't think. Um, well. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I do think that if, you know, you're saying that the, the show kind of as a whole embodies that sense, I think that's really cool. Because I, of course leading up to this, working on individual works and bodies of work. I'm just looking for that moment, typically within single, singular pieces. Mm -hmm. So to think about the show as a whole, including that is really nice. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like this is just real. Like I, you know, I tend to be pretty straightforward and honest about this stuff. Like, so doing a studio visit with you, you know, you have your, you have your space, right? And it's, it was or my multiple spaces, multiple spaces. You know, and then, the yeah, there's the epicenter space though, with the desk right. set up and, you know, work in process and, um, the, that space was pretty magical because there was so much happening in there and it didn't feel, um, you know, my space is, I don't know, my, you know, my space can feel pretty well, historically can feel pretty messy. My new space, not so much yet, but, um, there, the, the space was like teeming with potential mm -hmm. and I had enough experience with your work to know what actuals are going to emerge out of that possibly to just create this, like, you know, I was really excited. Um, and so, uh, 
I had this like picture of like, you know, your studio is like the suitcase that was unpacked into this show. And it's like, mm. there's so much, there was so much there. It's, it's blow, like, I mean, I think most people that have come to the show are just kind of like blown away at your tenacity. Like, I mean, there's like, there's like the work and then there's the intangibles behind the work that are indicative of the artist. And so there's a, there's a tenacity there or a, a focus. So you're not, um, you're not happy. You don't seem to be haphazard. Um, how, how do you feel? Like, I, I'm just curious, like if, if, is tenacity a, uh, a dirty word or, I mean, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, is that like, how's that strike you? No, I think tenacity is, is really important. Um, I have a friend who's recently started an art space and as part of the, the space, it's called Art File. It's based in Montclair, awesome. New Jersey. You maybe have seen some social media stuff from them at some point. Um, and as helping him out with a space and doing some kind of administrative work, like getting in touch with various artists that we're interested in, one of the things, tenacity is a word that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, because there have been people whose work I've encountered in one way or another online. And then when I go to find out what they're they're making now, they're not making work anymore. Yeah. And I just, yeah. you know, so you're talking about tenacity in a different sort of way in regards to focus within my own practice. But I think that tenacity is absolutely key for any artist's success. Mm -hmm. Like you just, you just have to keep doing it. You right. just have to stick around. Right. So yeah. not a dirty word at all. A very yeah. important word. Yeah. I think ownership, I mean, I don't know. I feel like sometimes there, it's a little bit taboo to take ownership over that. It feels too salient or something um, too aggressive or, mm -hmm. you know, to, it, but there, that quiet tenacity that, that like, you know, there's a not, I mean, Gareth and I are, I mean, I think when we talked about doing this podcast, I think one of the things for us and working together at Shaka Art Space now and like as things are expanding is that we overlap relationally in our spheres of influence, but we also plot out different territories. So we, we have a lot to learn. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. part of this was like, we have a lot to learn. We're, we're curious. We want to know more. Sure. We want to share more. We want to generate community. Um, you know, both online, but also in the city of Richmond and, and there's so much potential here, but it, it requires people kind of coming together and being comfortable in their differences, mm -hmm. um, in being okay with being equally tenacious without it being like, without being threatened by it, right. you know, cause Gareth is coming out of a design context. So I'm coming at far more out of a fine art context. And so there are differences that are, yeah. uh, where, where it allows for real lapses or ignorance like i'm ignorant to things that i think gareth is quite capable of and possibly vice versa so, definitely vice versa yeah so you know um so i think that's a part of the discussion is like and i don't know maybe you can kick this around like thinking about like what sustains a practice but also like what sustains a community like we were talking earlier about this like mm. the inner intersection between the personal sustaining of a practice and how that might relate to generatively to like the community at large, yeah. you know, like when, you know, there's like, what's up with Richmond as far as like, um, I think Amanda Dollaby is a pretty awesome mm -hmm. writer, um, uh, did a piece on, in Burnaway, oh, yeah. uh, talking about Richmond in, in a way that I thought was pretty brave mm -hmm. and sincere, honest and needed, yeah, uh, the you know, the question of like. Um, which is in a way was like a kind of a tenacious thing, like in my mind, I guess not to overstress that now, but, but just to say that, um, uh, uh took a stab at saying like, Hey, we need, we kind of need more. Mm -hmm. Um, and that requires something of us that I, I just wonder if we can give that or not. Anyhow, I don't know what, 
what kind of thoughts do you have about about that? Um, I I don't know how you know the tenacity of an individual relates to sort of a sense of community building tenacity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that maybe the the answer to that will be found with you guys and your sense of tenacity and all of the goals that you have, you know, you're not only tenacious, but you're very ambitious as well for mm-hmm. what you might bring to the Richmond community over the next couple of years, which I think is really great. Um, I don't know how, how individual tenacity relates to community mm-hmm. building. Um, I will say you're the person that, you know, I always say, but you're the person that suggested JT Kirkland apply to show here. Oh yeah. So, so you, you do, you kind of know at the, at the intuitive level, I think, cause you did it and then it like, it really galvanized like that was that like in hindsight, you know, cause we, we were doing things here since like 2011. Yeah. Um, but really, really, uh, this building was like pretty drab and like, um, a lot of problems not like problems in a bad way but just like things that needed to grow and mature before i, I felt like the space could be a public facing mm-hmm. enterprise like that had a, a certain level of expectation or standard and that didn't occur until 2016 when we mm-hmm. launched it officially at shaco art space and that yeah i think blade Wynn had a really awesome show up yes. and it was starting to look at like uh building out the next several large-scale solo mm-hmm. exhibitions and really wanting the quality to be there, like really wanting to send a solid precedence. And so that particular uh, contact that you made mm-hmm. uh, was pivotal in that. You know, so I mean, I feel like that was yeah. a, an extension of kind of like what I've come to know about you uh, as a person. You seem, you seem generous and pointed in your generosity, which would also be indicative of that kind of focused tenacity kind of thing pointed generosity I think is is very accurate in describing me like I I do like playing professional matchmaker if you know with colleagues that Mm. I'm very familiar with their work and what their sort of career progression has looked like Mm. um yeah I like to to match people up with opportunities if and when I can do that yeah 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 so I think that's part of it. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just trying to, like, honestly, just trying to think because I think that that's, you know. No, I generosity mean, is definitely part of community building. Um, hopefully more and more people can be expressing that. I think mm-hmm. that's that's something that, you know, that's almost like a what comes first, chicken or the egg kind of thing. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. when you have a sense of strong community, people are more willing to be generous. But community is also built on generosity, so. Yeah, so who, yeah, so. <laughs> like yeah, like what falls, what what falls first? Yeah. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I don't. I mean, I, I think you know we're trying to figure it out, but it is, it is a question. Um, I think part of it, I don't know what you all think about this, but I think some of it has to do with maybe uh, we haven't always done the best job, like the best job, and maybe I'm off here, but maybe we haven't done the best job at helping others in a thoroughgoing way appreciate like like how art design I mean how these pervade how they matter um and how they maybe already are mattering in people's Mm -hmm. lives that they're completely 
unaware of because maybe they don't have to be aware. Like you can just kind of take it for granted. Like I always tell, you know, parents of, uh, that are worried about whether or not their, their child is going to be able to be an artist, you know, I'm like, well, you're, you know, depending on, uh, what they go into, you're like, you're in some way, if the arts are pervasive enough, like you're, you're already wearing clothes. So somebody made those clothes, right. you know, I always kind of go back to that same statement. Like is how many things uh, in your life are design made considered that doesn't deal with maybe the work that you and I make per se, but it does create a really thoroughgoing context for understanding the nature of creativity and its value. Mm-hmm, sure. You know, so I don't know. No, I think that's I think it's definitely fair. Um, and as y'all are talking, one of the things that's going through my head is just annually how many beginning of their career artists and designers the city of Richmond is putting out into the right. market yeah. right. to like start their careers, whether they're going. You know, for something that's very industry heaven or uh, headed, uh, industry heavy, or uh, very like fine arts based, mm-hmm. like it's there's a lot of those folks out there, and I think that one thing that um, I don't see as much of as I would like, I think, is some of this point of generosity because, you know, think of when each of us started out at the very beginning. Like one of the things I think we were all searching for was somebody who's just like hey I can give you a little insight yeah I'm a few more years down the road yeah I can help you with and that's that's hugely helpful right yeah but I think that's also something that becomes um pivotal like you're saying for a community to really raise up that's like good and strong and uh, has some kind of legs under to stand um because it's real easy for us if we're in a student space to say oh here's like the pinnacle these are the people that I want to be like that have already Mm -hmm. made it they're already there but when we start talking about folks that are kind of like mid-career, right, right. or they're, they're on the way up, like those are the ones I think that can be the most helpful because yeah. they give us the like, oh, this is just, this is a, a step that I have to make. It's not this huge leap mm-hmm. that I think I have to do all at one time. Yeah, no, I think that's big. The, the crystallized goal, you know, the, the kind of uh, immortal hero sort of thing is a thing, you know, right. but then it's it's often so contained it's like sealed you know hermetically sealed it's like i don't have access to that i can behold it Mm -hmm. and admire it but i don't i don't i can't fully see the the steps to get there and uh we don't like you know there's not like commercials for for art super bowl where you get to you know where there's like you know people like people interviewing artists behind the scenes well maybe this is what this is but you know you know what i'm saying but like you know we like the pop level access at in in terms of the, the the humanity and the the persons themselves like we just don't have that so like kind of coming back to like you know the origin story it's like yeah like comic books were like this private access point for me and i you know i ended up like liking things that you weren't supposed to like like the frames of the images rather than the the characters themselves Mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense based on what i do now Mm -hmm. you know like you you end up having these weird private distorted kind of like experiences aesthetically that you're like i don't know how to make sense of this like i don't even know if this is worth caring about you know and then who do you go to with that like who do you (laughs) who do you talk to you know um so it seems like we have to be more visible um in in certain ways but it requires sacrifice i guess so i don't know i don't know but i I do think it's worth worth thinking about for sure Mm -hmm. um you know um i'm also like just sitting here it's like i'm super well i I would like to know uh who 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 do you who do you look at i mean is there any is there do you you know, going backwards, do you have heroes? You know, some people don't. So, yeah, yeah. Who, who are some people that have been significant uh, makers? I for... definitely have heroes. Um, I was thinking 
it's so funny because this comes up and then I forget about it, but then I remembered again, right when I mentioned being really obsessed with Renaissance art, also someone that I looked at when I was very, very young was a lot of MC Usher, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think that a lot of viewers make that connection pretty, pretty immediately when they see certain works of mine. But, um, so that sense of world building, I think via art images was something that was instilled really early on and an interest in that specifically through MC Escher's work. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, just within the past 10 years, I've mentioned to you before Judy Pfaff is Mm -hmm. just basically my art Elvis. Like if I were to see her on the street or in a coffee shop, I, I don't know how I would react to that. Um, I'm literally picturing Judy Pfaff in like a one piece in an cape in an Elvis late <laughs> Vegas late Elvis. Vegas Elvis nice. cape. <laughs> nice. And then MC Hammer is somehow in the back of my mind, be, like kind of doing like MC Etcher. I don't know, like yeah, this is this cultural satellite debris in my mind. It just orbits my brain and like nice. it inappropriately interjects itself into like sincere conversation. So I'm sorry. Um, I've also been looking at recently at a lot of Daniel Buren stuff. Okay. Um, which was really funny because I had a student who did a presentation on his work a couple years ago and I was like, oh yeah, that guy's cool, but it didn't make the connection of how related and how actually interested I was in his work. And I wasn't super familiar with it at that time, but then recently it came up again, I think in some of my online travels that I've been really excited about it and just thinking about the kind of audacity that he has to just throw his patterns Mm -hmm. all over these giant structures and to just you know alter buildings according to his vision and I don't think it's something that he feels as compelled to answer for as Mm -hmm. a lot of us would right so I mean that's one of the things like so I love I love his work but I also love his attitude where it's just like it's worthy of being made and it's worthy of being seen because it's different and it's it's so ambitious um yeah, it's like a, it's like the, it's like scale loses importance just enough to not stress about the justification for like painting a building. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, it's almost like you have to see it as not that there's like the Jean-Claude or, or Christo, like, you know, like there, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of that kind of bravado, you yeah. know, I'm going to make this a really big deal and I'm going to wrap this building. Right. But then there's like maybe a more nonchalant almost like a, a simplistic like yeah that's that's that big mm-hmm. you know that's like 40 feet tall and i'm gonna i'm gonna create this pattern on there yeah. or i'm gonna do it at four by four inches but really it's just a matter of playing with scale mm-hmm. and no big deal i don't i mean not that it isn't but i think right. that that mindset that freedom um is, is really interesting yeah yeah i think also i mean like this is something that you and i were talking about earlier ryan is um the transformative nature of objects we make, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we even talk about those, that concept with what you're talking about here, um, you know, the transformative nature within an interior space of a work that's on a wall mm-hmm. or a work that's on a, a dais or whatever um, is in a lot of ways, quality-wise, not that different than the transformative aspect of a, a building draped in a giant piece of cloth mm-hmm. within the scale of a city, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, kind of understanding like almost like are we 
are we starting to talk about like where where does art exist best as art are there those kind of questions or is it kind of like pushing into spaces of um now there's something actually about like how spaces are changed through the work that is evident in them Mm -hmm. and like what effect that has on people because i think that also gets into discussions about community mm-hmm. in arts right mm-hmm. and the way that what we do is exhibited in that space and how mm-hmm. it transforms those areas because i think and speaking from my experience i think one of the things i liked so much about design is that you could literally transform the way somebody understood something mm-hmm. um, so it was like in a communication aspect like the design itself could transform something from mundane to actually readable mm-hmm. or vice versa yeah right um, and so can you talk a little bit about with your abstraction, with your invention, with, um, the ways that you're doing things, like how do you understand a work's transformative power or do you even think that's something valid? I think that it's super valid. And I do think like when you're talking about a work's transformative power, I'm interpreting that as a work's ability to communicate. Um, and so I think a lot about mood that's communicated within a work and so of course my color palette is tied to that really that's probably the the first thing that anybody notices when they look at the work that's related to communication um and then also the use of patterning within pieces i think of that as uh communicating a certain sort of intensity or urgency um i really more for the most part, think about just the psychological qualities of works and how the elements and principles of design come together to communicate mood. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's related no, specifically it, it, to what it you're does. talking about. I think about. that's you know because because really I think with transformation it's like you know there's there's the like the physical action right that like having an escalator next to stairs changes behavior right um, so there's that aspect of it but I think also if we're talking about like in a reflective sense, like the transformative power of art is kind of like launching thoughts into places, understanding the work and getting into it. Um, well, yeah, it, yeah, it like, I mean, this is like, uh, how do you say it? I mean, it could, it could sound, uh, I mean, short of like being able to demonstrate it, like which we could, but you wouldn't be able to, since we're, well, we are recording, but since we're in a podcast, you can't show, but we can go home and do this, you know, like just do, do the, take two pieces of paper and, cut up a small piece of paper that's the same color and drop it into the center of the other two papers and watch how the context of the color changes that, mm-hmm. you know, and I do that. Like I have my students do that just as a, I'm like, so I have them do that and we keep going back and forth and, and, and I always tell them it's not, don't explain away how it is that's happening. That's not the important thing right now. The important thing is that it's happening mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that it's happening. And then I'll say, okay, now you know that this little blue piece of paper has been cut in half and it's, against this black piece of paper and it's against this like fluorescent pink piece of paper or white or whatever. And we've done a a bunch of changes and you also, you know, so you know that it's the same piece, but it is changed. The qualities are shifted. Uh, the characteristics are the same. If you just came in out of nowhere, you wouldn't necessarily think that's the same piece of paper. Everybody agrees. And I'm like, now stare at it as long as you can until you can, because you intellectually know that it's the same paper. Mm -hmm. So stare at it. Knowledge proceeds, right? So you know it is, so make it so. Because right. like you'll have people that are like we make our own reality um, completely, mm-hmm. and maybe we do, but not completely. Like there are things that are occurring independent uh, from us. I think 
And so people try and they can't do it. Mm -hmm. And so then I say like, if that is the case with just paper, that's affecting you. That has, it's like, it's like gravity. It's like a law over your, you know, it, it has its place. It should be respected that that can occur. Like how much more can occur when you start to fashion and further and craft your works of art, you know, specify those, bring those to bear in a given context. It's not neutral. Mm-hmm. You may you may have the power to ignore it, but it isn't ignoring you, and it is it is rendering an effect. Right. You know. Otherwise, like you know, we wouldn't have interior designers, and you know, hotels wouldn't be drabby the way that they are. Sometimes mm-hmm. I don't know. Like you know what I mean? Like we you know we we want spaces a certain way because they actually do something, mm-hmm. which is I think a really compelling argument for the importance of art and how it possibly transforms mm-hmm. you know i mean because your 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 work I, I always go back to radiant like there's a you know there's a fluorescent you know luminosity and it radiates like it it sort of uh precipitates through the paper mm-hmm. um and so if you start thinking about like what kind of place is that yeah you know like what kind of is it radiant and and hot to the point that i can't be here or is it mm-hmm. radiant but like refreshing you know it starts to get in these sure. interesting paradoxes um i don't know what, what do you what do you think about that when you when you hear the idea or at least to me like i think your work does that so yeah there's <clears throat> been a number of interesting color related conversations that i've had about the work about my palette mm-hmm. over the last 10 plus years at this point because i've continued to use fluorescent colors um for a while now and my association with it has always been that they're rooted in the natural world, that these are colors mm-hmm. that you see, like when I was talking about that moment when I was in the alleyway with the light shining through foliage or thinking about underwater sea life and mm-hmm. animals that have natural fluorescence. Um, that's always been my association with it. But more commonly, it seems that people have uh, this association with artificiality where yeah. they're thinking about like traffic cones or um, kids toys, things that are made out of plastic, which I just think is so interesting because, you know, a lot of the times we, when we start learning about color, we learn about co- color symbolism in elementary school and mm. it's taught in this super finite, like really universal way where red equals love. But that's not the case. You know, there are lots of cultures that have different associations with different colors. And even as individuals, we bring lots of baggage to mm-hmm. um, color and, and all, you know, all sorts of other signs and signifiers that are in work. Yeah. Um, so the conversations around the fluorescent colors specifically have always varied widely between mm-hmm. the more negative connotations of artificiality which I hear you talking about like as a place that's so hot or a place that's intolerable or people said before that they don't want to look at it it's too aggressive versus people who really enjoy it Mm -hmm. who do have associations with whimsy or with intensity feeling like euphoria or joy Mm -hmm. it's just it's always been interesting to me how varied people's responses specifically to that set of colors can be yeah, because I actually think, I mean, so I think that, that's like, I mean, I love what you said about the natural element because I've argued that for years with folks that maybe don't look at art. You know, like I saw an incredible show of butterflies mm-hmm. and they were like anywhere from a couple inches to like 
eight inches in, in scale diameter or whatever and the color range was stunning like mm -hmm. the level of specificity and fluorescence and, and this is like they're just like occurring you right. know they're like caterpillars popping out of a chrysalis magically yeah <laughs> and like da -da, it's like magic right there it, yeah. um i mean really like you really can't you're like why is that there and why is it like that and and so you know because like when i would look at your work i would say that the radiance is there but it actually uh brings about a refreshing cool coolness like a like i can actually be in the space hmm. so it, it's paradoxical to some of those cultural assumptions that are like you would say baggage like loaded onto the work a mm -hmm. little bit you know the artificiality like the the signifiers that you know, that allow for certain connotations to be the, the thing for somebody and so what i what i what i get to i guess is like i think i think that that's the uh, imperative for artists to be artists and to be visible is like i think the way um i you know the co confirmation bias is real mm -hmm. uh, people tend like it's like i tell my students like you know um you know, when you buy a car, all of a sudden you notice that car everywhere. And so you tend to right. work out of what you've already, you tend to work out of what you already value or what you're coming to value and to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah. And I think that that's the case in the way people look at or think about art is a process out of their epistemology, which is centered on uh, what they most value in a, in a kind of like a useful way or a mm -hmm. practical way. And, uh, um, I feel like you talked a little bit about like the enchanting quality of that garden experience. Mm -hmm. And I just really drawn to that because I think that there is a lack of enchantment to the world we find ourselves in. Sure. Um, how, how do you, cause you've mentioned, so heading somewhere, right? So like disenchanted re-enchantment possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, and also internet, cause we've talked about, I mean, it's, it's in the background of the discussion. So well, Instagram. That's what I was just thinking about when yeah. you said this sort of disenchantment with, with the world and how we're all trying so hard to put it out there that we're, we are enchanted. We lead these amazing enchanted lives via social media and what we, how we want everybody to, to perceive us. It's, so weird. It is. The world that we live in is so weird. It is weird. It's weird. It's weird at levels that I never, like when I was a kid, like, so I'm, you know, born in 75. So like, I remember, you know, I just remember like growing up as a kid in the eighties with like MTV just showing up mm -hmm. and like being worried about like the cold war right. because I was told to by teachers and you know, yeah. just really only really understanding Ronald Reagan by virtue of his hair. Like just the shape and look of his hair was like the thing that I remembered. It stood out to me. It's like he has presidential hair, right. you know, and I confirmed that by looking at like Kennedy's hair and then I bypassed Carter and Nixon because they didn't have that kind of hair. Do you know what I mean? Like that's where I was at. Like as like a seven year old. Sure. Um, and then like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I don't even know where I was going with that. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. But, um, but no, so I, I don't think I, I, I definitely had, you, you just couldn't, I couldn't see the future we're sitting in right now. I mean, not even for a second, yeah. you know. Um, I mean, I'm sure some could. There's probably some prophetic folks that have written some. I mean, I think I've read some interesting people that have kind of tracked where we're headed, but mm -hmm. I certainly didn't. Um, back then, I don't think I, I... I was not preparing for the... I was not preparing for this world. I was, I was, I was learning for another world, mm -hmm. and it, it didn't happen. Right. <laughs> this one did, uh, uh, which gets into culture making for me a little bit. Like, what do we do based on where we're at? You know, how do we envision the future? How do you 
you know, how do you, you know, what, what kind of world do you want to live in going forward is an interesting question. So this artificiality thing, you know, right. I have colleagues that have openly expressed interest in like having their consciousness uploaded onto a computer in like, in like a hard drive and living in that world and uh, a disembodied world, so to speak, you know, like a, in, in very sincere convictions, you know. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Because you and I both know that we benefited from Instagram. I mean, like, there's, sure. yeah, I love. Oh my gosh! Like, I mean, I love seeing art on Instagram. Totally. It's a it's a passion. But yeah, that being uploaded, <laughs> that just sounds like a nightmare. That sounds like. <laughs> yeah. <it's>, because yeah. <laughs> once it happens, I mean, I I just feel like, dude, like, dude, you're like. It's kind of like, it, however that would be possible, like you just take the leap and then you're like, you have no body, so you have no senses. So you, you're a limit. It's kind of like when someone's like, likes to imagine their funeral and who's going to be there. You're like, that's a futile exercise because you'll be dead. Yeah. So you won't receive the benefits of all the people that talk about you. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like they're, you're, you're making an illogical leap. So like, it's kind of like, I think the idea is that like somehow you'll have better sensation and feeling. <sighs> But, but you won't because you won't have a body. You won't be, you know, I don't know. It's a this weird discussion. Is the, this is the yeah. worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you take us to this I'm place? Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, I can, I can kind of entertain it because I can think about dreams that I've had that have been mm -hmm. really intense. And mm -hmm. so I guess it would be, it would be like that. Yeah. Forever and ever. But yeah. then that's not real. Like... Right. Well, I mean, I think, it, I, I think it's interesting though, because I mean, I think, you know, the work, like when you make a work and you come into a gallery, uh, how we understand that work, I think, uh, is changing. I mean, people abandoned vinyl records and now vinyl's back with a vengeance and there's not yeah. enough people that can press records to keep up with the demand because there was something tactile or analog about mm -hmm. records that people want still, you know? I mean, so... Right. You know, I just think like it's really an, an interesting time to be a visual artist that is not uh, squarely living in a digitized world of making. But, it, you know, and I'm not opposed to all that. Obviously, like we use, you know, I mean, I wouldn't hang out with Gareth. Um, Gareth does a lot of work <laughs> online, right? Or, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, and it's interesting, right? I talk about like, the Internet is I, uh, I couldn't tell you how many years it's been since I've had a Richmond based client. Hmm. Just wow. Hasn't yeah. Um, and it's not because Richmond doesn't have fantastic people to do work with. But it's because the people I've worked with with have led to uh, this person's in this other city. They're doing this thing. This person that's over here. There's this company here. Yeah. And you know, so it creates a fantastic network. But I think there is this like double-edged sword to it, right? Yeah. Um, Do you think it's a baby with the bathwater kind of like? So it's not that we don't press into these things, but that we we don't. You know, there's there's things we need to remember or rem continually remember about the world that is. I yeah, know. I think so. I mean, so I teach a, a course on uh, web design and it's intro web design. So we, we start from the assumption that you have no experience mm -hmm. in this course. And so um, one thing I have to always push the students back to is that these, these digital things, these platforms, these boxes and screens we interact with, like they didn't come about because of some profound paradigm shift. They came about because we needed something to do what humans already did, but faster mm -hmm. and better in some ways. And now we just leaned into that to almost say to the detriment of like, oh, well, we found a better way to do it. So the other way, maybe we can throw that, throw that out a little bit. Right. You know, we don't need it. Even though 
uh, like the nature of something like the internet or Instagram is that personal connection, but at times we lose that because mm-hmm. we can say, oh, well, now instead of having three of us in a room for a few hours to talk about something, I can have 400 people in about four minutes as I scroll through this, yeah. right? And so, I don't know. I, it's really, I think, a double-edged sword, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that like one side can be fantastic, but it's it's a tricky territory to navigate, mm-hmm. right? Also because also it just sucks us in, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think the beauty of, a, of something like a gallery is that even in a show with 50 pieces, it's a large show, you come in and there's something that kind of lets us take a breath mm-hmm. and experience it a bit differently than if I just scroll through 50 images on my phone. Yeah. No, I, I've said that this show is like one you you like. There are works that translate uh, in a way, sometimes there's works that just like almost translate better online to the point that you're let down hmm. uh, when you see it in person. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like, I mean, I feel like your work translates well online, but I actually think it's it's actually far more compelling in person, which is a strong argument for, mm. like, needing to actually sit sit before it, see it, walk mm. around in the space, that kind of thing. Like, that your yeah, eyes I, need to I think that your work, like, uh, especially with the, the <clears throat> colors you're using, like, it's, it's a completely different thing to see it without the controlled nature of the color that comes across in a digital space. Mm-hmm. Also, the hand. Uh, I, I think, like, one of the things that it's been interesting to watch is there are there's the there's there's people that come in and their initial assumption is like these things are printed right and then they get close and they're kind of like their whole framework has to change because they recognize that these marks they're minuscule organizing marks and there's slips of the hand or there's like a, a wobble in the slightest place in in the in the best possible way mm-hmm. that indicates that oh my gosh all of this is made none of this is like this is all from the hand, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of an acclimating or a resensitizing away from the kind of digital assumption in a, in a, in a way that I found really compelling in just observing uh, people coming through and seeing the show. Yeah, um, I've seen folks come in and there's two conversations they have. Um, one is usually they'll move into a piece and they'll, then they'll suddenly say, oh, this is woven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they don't realize that like there's like like multi-level to it. There's not a flat piece that just kind of existing in an image, but uh, yeah. there's something else to it. Or in uh, your shadow boxes with your, your abstract shapes and patterns, they are constantly kind of moving around and they're saying, mm-hmm. where is this color coming from? Like, where is this like kind of glow that I'm seeing? Like, where is that happening? And they're, they're trying to figure out the piece in a way that you can't interact with if I'm just looking at an image. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it's been, you know, it's been, uh, I mean, that's why I keep saying it's worth, it's worth seeing for sure. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just think, uh, these are the issues that we need to think about a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you get, how do you help people? I mean, it sounds super assumption, assumptive to be like, we need to help people do this. I mean, I need help doing it. Like I, I can pass over so much and so I'm aware that I'm passing over a lot and I'm missing out on the the specifying transformative power of the of of the nature of things like how they actually have shaping influence that is actually tangible and real and um you know the practice of being before something um that is not a flat hierarchy i mean that relates to persons i mean you think about our not to not to get into this but even our social climate like being able to sit together and talk mm-hmm. and, and see each other and listen to each other is like something i think i 
we need more of, not less. Yeah, I was, I was thinking kind of along the same lines in terms of, um, you know, we've been talking at almost uh, talking about almost from like a, like completed work forward. But if we think about this in terms of how it transforms what we do as artists from the completed work backwards, um, is our inability to sit before an image and view it and really take it in in person, does that impact negatively our ability to make those images in the first place and spend the time that we need to create the work? Or is that kind of dulling our senses to where we're okay with finish at an earlier state because we're uncomfortable mm. with just kind of... The gratification is not, not there mm. right. right away. Yeah. How do you... What do you think about that? I mean, I mean, because I, I mean, like I said, you said it a, a bit. It's in the background of the discussion, like this artist on Instagram, and and I'm definitely there. Like the the blessing of Instagram mm -hmm. is like it's allowed me to bypass the old days of like for me it would be like in Sacramento, like um, California, like laying in a library with like mm -hmm. fifty volumes of art forum and pouring over every image I could find. Right. You know, like um, and then like the prospects of like. How do you even find artists? You know, I did some gallery stuff there as a working artist, and, and so Instagram has completely transformed that in mm -hmm. the best possible way. Yeah. So how, yeah, how, does that? I don't know. What do you think that 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 um, the positives of that uh, create um, expectations that, that make it harder to be an artist in some ways, or do you think it makes it easier for you? Like, how do you? How has that? Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on that in light of this discussion? I don't think that it really affects my practice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would say at this point I'm developing a practice that's specific to social media, which is extremely difficult and is its own sort of creature. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't think that it has a bearing on what I do in the studio at this point. And I, I don't see it, I don't see it mm -hmm. factoring in heavily anytime in the near future right because what I make is what I make and like I said I respond to my work yeah um, so how do you so coming coming out of the show just kind of curious like what's your now that this show is you've sort of been done have you been back in the studio like what, what's your mindset sometimes people have like a major drop you know you yeah. get kind of like you're like exhausted you're done yeah you're done you're like it's hard to get back in the studio right away what's that been like for you it has been a little bit hard, um, but I have a couple different things that are in progress. Um, I have a little series that I started that tends to be a go-to for me. Like when I have times that I feel blocked, I can usually dream up a series. Of course, it's with the structures. I mentioned this during the artist talk that the structures have been a go-to kind of way of working for me for a while. And it was really interesting because I think at the close of the artist talk, I was leaning toward really wanting to continue the like low relief, non-objective uh, shadow box pieces, which I'm still super interested in. But in a way I feel like over the last couple of weeks, I've more so doubled down on wanting to continue with the architectural structures series. interesting because at one point I and I think that it was through you know I was talking about doing some arts administration for that space I've been looking at so many artists work and at one point I had this realization that there are so few people that work in black and white mm -hmm. because it is its own set of challenges mm -hmm. 
And could I, well, I, I won't, I won't give it away because this is my mystery for, for right now to sure. wrestle with, but definitely asking myself some questions around color palette and how to reapproach some things mm-hmm. and make new, a series that has been ongoing for a while mm-hmm. now. Yeah, I definitely had that, like, so Albert Ullin was a big influence for me. And he has his black and white paintings. And Philip Gustin went through a pared down black and white palette mm-hmm. painting thing. And, um, you know, I think it was in like 2012, I started making an aspect of the work was black and white because it had its own thing. And I, I remember feeling like I had a professor named Ian Harvey, who I think did something similar. And he, he was uh, talking about my work in my studio. And he was like, it's so dense. And, you know, there's some problems you need to solve in your work in, in simplifying in certain places like black and white and I was like ah that's like taking the easy way out like you know I really saw it that way and then um and now you know so many years later uh um it is its own set of problems Mm -hmm. and then it re at least for me so like that's like my mainline work but then the 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 smaller works I've been making that are more object oriented that are color for the most part I mean it's it's reintroduced color to me in a new way. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it kind of reframed color because I, I found that, um, yeah, my, I mean, now I'm thinking out loud, like, yeah, like I think a lot of my references for color prior to that were artificial. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, um, you know, it was like product design and that's still an influence, but it's not the only one now. Right. So it, I don't know. Anyhow, I think, I think those, uh, those shifts can be like paradigmatic mm-hmm. and, uh, really yeah i think it's really interesting territory and it is i don't see a lot of that you know um so do you have any do you have any shows coming do you have anything else coming after this what's your what's your you have any any goals residencies and you know you can talk about that yeah i've always got goals um (laughs) so i have work up in a couple of shows in different places right now in addition to being here which is really nice and is typical of the artist's life where it's you know like everything is happening all at once um, and then you have times where there's nothing, but so I have a couple pieces in a show that's at Crooked Tree Art Center in Traverse City, Michigan. Um, and that's a paper cut show that I was invited to be in, which I was really excited because, you know, I apply for so many things and don't get into so many things. And yeah. so then to actually be invited to something just because the person curating it was actually familiar with my work was really nice. Um, and then... There is a show up at Art Space right now in the project space called Environment at Risk, which was put together by an artist friend named Jessica Sims, who also works for the Sierra Club. And that is spotlighting current concerns about coal ash and the pipeline in Virginia. So that's going to be up. I think both of these shows are going to be up through, I want to say, the end of March. Um, but besides that, right now, just applying for lots and lots of things, continuing to research even more things to apply to, and we'll just see what happens. I'd really like to get a residency in this year, but right, just right. fingers crossed about whether or not that actually happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, I'm probably getting close to, to winding down. Do you, ha- you have any, you have any uh, questions about it? I most of the stuff that uh, has really stuck out to me in the work. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, because um, I know that um, I'm really interested in just the actual kind of 
just the practical kind of day-to-day of an artist's life. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and um, I know one, one conversation that I've been having with a lot of folks is around the nature of what work looks like for artists. Mm-hmm. right? Because I think we kind of go back to these ideas we talked about when we all started out our scope was kind of narrow, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, an artist's life is like you know, the parties and it's like super sexy and shiny, right? A lot of wine. Uh-huh. You're doing a lot of yeah. great stuff and hanging uh-huh. out and people yeah. are just adoring you. Yeah. So I think it's like when we're sitting in those trenches when we're like, no, this is actually, this is the real work of the artist. Yeah, right? no one's telling you to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, for you. So I would say like, like what does, um, what does that kind of look like for you on a day-to-day? Like how do you, how can you talk about like, practices or things that you've come up with to like keep your work moving forward even when it's you know a bleak February morning it's cold well one of the nice things about having shows on the slate is my day-to-day does become a lot more structured Mm. so I'm kind of out of that right now um but I do you know probably do I'm not gonna say an hour because it's it's really up and down, but I do daily research new opportunities and I have a list, like a spreadsheet of when those things are upcoming due. Um, and I have lots and lots of folders on my desktop organizing. Like I don't usually just sit down and work on one application all at once and knock it out. I kind of will compile like one day I'll just edit the images and stick them in the folder and then go work on something else or research something else. Um, which you know, it sounds a little scattered, is a little scattered, but interestingly, unsurprisingly enough, kind of mirrors my studio practice as far as typically I have lots of things going on and I like to switch back and forth between works in progress as opposed to just sitting down and finishing something in one fell swoop. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually work a lot at night. I am big time night owl. Like I'll do emails or administrative stuff in the afternoon and then not typically get started with studio hours until later on in the day and then be up working until you know sometimes two like if I don't have anything going on for the next couple of days I'll oftentimes be up until four like I'm pretty pretty nocturnal in regards to studio practice um yeah, it's really up and down right now as far mm-hmm. as structuring my time. Um, I have the time period that I'm doing the administrative stuff for art files, so that, that takes up a little bit of time during the week. I have a retail job that I go to for a couple hours during the week also. So not it's, not that structured. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I wonder if I'm just like I'm listening to you and like, you know, like I, I, my life is you know, largely structured by the academic calendar of being right. an instructor at university, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, um, teaching in art foundations, like I, I have like these seasonal rhythms that I have to then plug everything else into and around mm-hmm. the, the primary function of that. So studio practice, everything, art space, all that flows. And so I have, uh, I'm habituated in some ways towards this academic calendar. I've been involved in academics like my whole life, basically. Right. So like I have not had to structure much of my life away from that structuring component. Mm-hmm. And I, it's making me think like, I wonder how, how much that is at play in terms of difficulties for artists post-school 
because of the way academia has given them seasonal rhythms and structures mm-hmm. that uh, you almost, almost can uh, operate with at the level of assumption. You just assume it and it, it is. And so then you get out and you're like, uh, it, it, it's not there for you. Those mm-hmm. rhythms, those like graduating rhythms, um, those validating rhythms, like right. I got grades, I got critiques, I got like, so then we get to this place where um, that's all gone, mm-hmm. essentially, um, unless you're a professor at a university. And so uh, perhaps or whatever. And so, you know, um, I don't know, I feel like maybe there's just like one more talking zone to go into, which is mm-hmm. like, it makes me think about uh, residencies. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shaco Art Space, like our hope here is that we would, you know, part of the vision is that, I mean, we're, we're moving into like uh, getting a, uh, additional space across the street from here and expanding to, uh, I think some classes that might address some of these issues. I mean, we'll be launching a journal cause I think writing is needed. We talked about that mm-hmm, a lot. Like definitely. I think there's a, a missing component of, uh, solid critical reviews of all the galleries here in Richmond, like, mm-hmm. uh, let alone writing to rest on that. And there's like some great stuff happening. I think look, is really good. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's really great components and people doing great things. And I think we can do more. Right. to support them and, and others, you know, with other institutions more consistency. Here, with more consistency and frequency. So like style weekly has done some great stuff, but then can we come and bring more consistency at a baseline level? But also one thing I think is missing here is, is more residencies to seize on mm-hmm. all that Richmond has um, to give, but also all that Richmond can take in from people that are outside of Richmond, like this right. kind of go between, you know? So just to say like, I'm, Part of Chicago Art Space's goal is to, as a nonprofit, is to, uh, you know, we're we're looking at launching a lot of these things this year. Like membership is coming. Like we're going to have a lot of, uh, like a fundraising campaign. A lot of things happening. But one of the goals we want is to have a residency for an artist, writer, and a curator to be mm-hmm. together, uh, to get some synergy and to do some projects, both for us, but also for other institutions and galleries and artist studios here in the city, um, with the hope that they can take. An awareness of people like yourself back out into their locations in other other cities and states mm-hmm. in the United States. So, um, so I don't know. Um, I feel like residencies are a really important thing in sustaining and supporting an artist's practice. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And you've had some experience, Dad. Would you uh, yeah. care to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, residencies have really played a, re- a super important role for me. I think. Um, They've always seen sorts of leaps forward in my work in regards to subject matter that I've dealt with or wanted to deal with and haven't felt like I could do it until for whatever reason I went to this new environment and finally allowed myself uh, to undertake it. Um, The first residency that I went to was actually the Vermont Studio Center Mm. in 2006. And it was during that time away in a amazing community of artists um that I decided I really need to take the steps to go back to grad school Uh, I was teaching in public school at that time and had taken this really wonderful um four credit grad class with Amy Oliver that over the course of the class, she recommended that I look into residencies, and one of the ones that she mentioned was the Vermont Studio Center. And so then I did actually go to that, and over being there, it was recommended that I strongly consider graduate school and went on to do that. And residencies have just been such an interesting 
um, bridge in a, at a lot of different times in my career, whether to new ways of working, like I was mentioning with subject matter, to new sorts of professional connections. Um, I always recommend like to other emerging artists, if you have not done an artist residency before, if it's something you think you might be interested in, because you know residencies aren't for everyone, you right. have to pack up your stuff and go work somewhere else and be away from your pets or significant other. Um, but if it's something you think you might be interested in, if you're dealing with some sort of major question in your work, it's it's something to really consider. It's something that I do usually try to recommend to people. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, they vary so much too. I mean, I, I have yeah. some colleagues that uh, were at one where, you know, to their surprise, like the space was so dilapidated that mm -hmm. part of what what the residency became was was actually making that place better for future residents right so that was really interesting on the one hand you're like dude this is this sucks on the other hand like what a, an amazing thought like yeah. that you you actually leave a place better than you found it kind of thing yeah um so there's there's aspiring um aspirational spaces that lack resources but the intentions are good right. and they need artists to be willing to work with them at that level right so you know and then there's the really incredibly established residencies where I think uh, uh, an exhibiting artist here, Roberto Jamora, was uh, at the Joe Mitchell residency. Mm -hmm. It was like it was like four star meals and like you know it was yes. like the like a rock show kind of treatment for you know a month or whatever it was, or yeah. maybe even longer. I can't remember if it was four months or a month, but it was like pretty extensive. And I was just like, I can't even imagine being treated that way. Mm -hmm. um, do Do you think it, you know in your mind as as someone who's seen a, a few? Uh, what are what do you think are some optimal or essential components for a residency to have like as an artist first and foremost what what's the best way to care for an artist if you will and serve an artist or support an artist through a residency like if you had to if you were going to do it if you were going to make one what would you if I were going to make one well that's that's different than how I was initially thinking of that question because as you were starting to yeah. frame that I was just going to say that you know, I think that artists really need to know themselves in regards to what they want from mm -hmm. residency when you're doing your research. Um, but if I were to try to make a residency, I think what you were just saying about having a small group, that to me is ideal. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if you're a more extroverted person and you really just specifically want a residency for the purpose of professional networking, that might not be. Right. your ideal yeah, that's interesting but i would prefer a smaller scale mm -hmm. group of people because i think that the quality of personal connections that you can make personal and professional connections is going to be better at a smaller scale right um if meals are provided i think that is also ideal because that's something that can definitely help artists writers get out of the the day-to-day -day grind not having right. to think about grocery shopping or meal preparation um <clears throat> let's see if there is a stipend that can be provided as well either for travels or for materials mm -hmm. uh, or both that is also something that is preferable mm -hmm. to a space that might ask for a fee for you know, room and board. Mm -hmm. Those would be my main things just off the top of my head. Right. 
not asking an artist for additional labor, like that, the residency <laughs> that you were talking about with, I hope that that was something, I know we they did it altruistically. The they did not, they were not asked. It was, yeah, okay, it was an extreme example. That's but, great. If yeah, they yeah, yeah. did that altruistically, yeah. cause I think that would be a, a total nightmare to just yeah. show up somewhere and be like, surprise, yeah. you're building this building for us. Yeah. Uh, there are residencies that, that state that up front, right. you know, like a, a sort of work study kind yeah. of situation. But yeah. typically if I go on residency, I just want to work. <laughs> yeah, um, you're going there actually to make your own work. You're like, surprised yeah. you're here to actually make my work for me. Exactly. It's, it's the Ryan Letario residency where you make my paintings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for learning with me. <laughs> yeah, so I think stipend, small group of people, meals provided. Um would be top of the list yeah. stipulations. My mind, like I'm listening to you and like, this is completely probably not feasible, but my mind is like, uh, it would be amazing to turn Richmond city into an artist residency. What, what I mean by that is, uh, enough people. So, cause you're talking about intimacy. I always say like, it's important for artists to be known and be, to know and be known by each other. And mm -hmm. that's like a big goal with even this podcast is to just to have honest conversation, uh, with designers and artists in and around the city um, and let other people in. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, like what you're saying does not sound impossible. And I, you know, I, I like, I could imagine the city becoming a residency for artists mm -hmm. because you know, and maybe this is utopic, but the recognition of the value of artists and, and you're talking about meals, meal support and like a space to work mm -hmm. and intimate contact with people that care. Oh, and let me also add, mm -hmm. um, some opportunity to either exhibit work or give an yeah, artist talk. Definitely. Not, I don't know, I've, I've been on residencies and also research residencies that it seemed like the stipulations for community interaction were a little bit above and beyond, like to the point that it would eat into your studio time mm -hmm. and maybe be distracting. Yeah. yeah. But I think that some opportunity to get to know the community and connect with them, you know, mm -hmm. even even at a very small level of just giving like a 10 minute artist talk about right. your work to a group of people. I think that's really important, too. Yeah. yeah and yeah, sounds yeah. in line with what you're thinking about as far as, you know, making professional bridges between Richmond and wherever right, resident right. artists would be coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I, 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 hope, I hope people listen to this just and hear, hear a bit of what you're saying, because I think if you tangibilize it and humanize it a little bit, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think there's opportunities on the table that are that are not stereotypical. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I can imagine there are people that have homes that are uh, they've never thought about the idea that their home and their garage could be converted into a studio mm -hmm. and their extra bedroom and their kitchen yeah. can become you know, essential to like allowing an artist for three months to, to have a residency there. Like, you know, I think, I think vision casting, like I, I'm like listening to, and it's just making me see, like, I just wonder mm -hmm. who out there has actually the possibilities if the community was, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of people that are interested or known enough to agree to help set these things in motion. Mm -hmm. You could, you could do things in, in a lot of different ways. Cause sometimes it's nice to be in a residency where you're remote, you're removed, mm -hmm. but also like, uh, it'd be great to be, in a it'd be great to be at home in this city, mm -hmm. but with, with some time out from some of the stuff that you're talking about to right. get time to conceptualize and, and 
create in such a way that it actually feeds back into the vitality of the environment you're in, the city you're in, the people you're in, that kind of thing. So I don't know. My wheels are turning, I guess, just thinking yeah. about what you, what you shared. So well, I think I think this would be a great place to stop. So we really want to thank you, Nikki. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Nikki. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for being super generous with your time. Amazing artist talk. Uh, amazing podcast interview. <laughs> and um, I think everyone needs to follow you uh on instagram oh, thank you what's what's your instagram it is in paint 373 please go there uh like follow and uh i can't i just can't wait to see what what you do next like i know a lot of good stuff is coming so thank you very much for having me yeah thank you thank you you've been listening to shaco art speak a production of shaco art space we are an independent non-profit art gallery in richmond virginia We can be found online at ShacoArtSpace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.